Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and all I want is a diamond tiara on your head. I was (laughs) hoping slash worrying that we would get some sort of... Marilyn Monroe impression from you this time, Jason. So there it was. I feel like it had to be done. You know, I mean, the only yeah. other thing to do is uh, like say it in a sport. You want to, you want to come talk to the swimming team, and that's like it becomes too much newsman from His Girl Friday, and not enough mm. Jane Russell. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah, that definitely doesn't sound like Jane Russell. No, but so. clearly the Marilyn Monroe. That's that's track. Sp- that's tracking really high. Spot on. <laughs> yeah. You you and Anna de Armas are like neck and neck <laughs> yeah. with how well you can do uh, that. And they do blonde the stage play. I know. Uh, we both know. I'll audition for that. I so. look forward to that. So, um, in this season of Awesome Movie Year. We are talking about the films of 1953, and this episode is my pick, and I have picked Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, starring Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell, and directed by Howard Hawks of His Girl Friday fame, as well as like many, many, 20 many, other many classics. Other movies. Yeah. Yes, one of the major directors of classic Hollywood, and this is actually sort of later in Howard Hawks' career that he made this film. It is a musical. And it is it is a long sort of string of adaptations. It began as a novel in 1925, written by Anita Luce, who is also a major classic Hollywood figure as a screenwriter, was then adapted into a stage musical in 1949. Um, although actually before that, it was adapted into a silent film in 1928, which I hadn't known about. And I was excited. I thought, oh, maybe I'll try to watch this. But sadly, that film is lost, is not accessible to anyone is uh, not anywhere to be found. Um, But it was a huge hit in 1949 as a stage musical. And that is what was the main basis for this film in 1953. Although they only used a handful of songs from the stage version and wrote a couple of new songs for this as well. So it was already a very well-known property. Um, I think the the book and the musical are not things that we necessarily know as much now. I mean, the movie, I think, has stood the test of time more so. But at the time that this movie came out, people were very familiar with this very popular book and this very popular stage production that were now being adapted into this film. So it was sort of a, a built-in audience for this. I think. Yeah, much like when we did How to Succeed in Business in 1967 there. There was uh, both those forms of media before it. Yes, exactly. And so this movie was a success. It grossed $5.3 million on its $2.3 million budget. And it was the seventh highest grossing movie of 1953. Although another 1953 movie starring Marilyn Monroe as a sort of a gold digger who joins her friends in trying to bag a wealthy man called How to Marry a Millionaire was the fourth highest grossing movie of 1953. So it was a big, big year for that exact sort of thing. It's so confusing to me, man. But uh, yeah. also confusing to me, and Josh, speak to both these points, is yes. Um, imagine you uh, that, you know, hey, we made a movie for two and a half million. It grossed uh, five and a half million. And it's a huge hit, and we're really happy about that. Right. Yeah, that's not the way it is now. And although those numbers, you know, I we we I grab those from Wikipedia, and sometimes those numbers are it's hard to tell if it's reflective of just during that year or over the course of re-releases or whatever. But I mean, if it was number seven at the box office, it was definitely a hit. So what it whatever those numbers exactly are. But yeah, I mean, movies at this time, 2.3 million is a good size budget for something like this. But you can see, I mean, this is a lavish production, lots of different sets and costumes and one of the biggest directors in Hollywood and two very big rising stars. So you can see how they put that money on screen. Songwriters like Hoagie Carmichael, people who were very famous and well-known that they hired to write music for this. So it looks like a big budget production so i just looked it up it's basically if they made it today they'd have made it for 24 million and oh, then it's not bad yeah and then it would have grossed 53 million 
And um, they would have all been upset because it only goes <laughs> or 55 million. How could this only gross 55 million? <laughs> yeah. Although, uh, I mean, a $24 million budget these days is is like mid to low range, I feel like. So maybe it would have been all right and they could have streamed it somewhere. But no streaming in 1953. So they made their money at the box office. And um, it was nominated for one minor award, the WGA Award for the Best Written American Musical, a very specific category. But I suppose there were a lot of American musicals in 1953, so enough to nominate there. Hey, Josh, um, what about this uh, this character trope of the time of uh, gold digging woman protagonist? Yeah, I, I, I love that. I mean, obviously, I love this movie. That's why I picked it. and. I I love that character type. I don't know why it is. I mean, I feel like there's still stuff like that, um, but maybe it was more so. The original novel, Anita Luce's novel, is from 1925 and was set in 1925. So it was really at the height of the Depression when that kind of desperation of, for financial security, I think, was a bigger deal. So and and if you're a woman in 1925, how do you get financial security? Not via a career. You get it by marrying someone who has money. So maybe that's part of where I'm I'm surprised that you love that character type because you're you know, we always joke about how woke you are and uh, progressive and we're all progressive on this show. But I think sometimes you lean, especially uh, you're beyond uh, pro feminist, Josh, you're an ultra feminist right here. And I, I feel like you can see this character as, um, you know, you see it as one step forward. I see it as two steps back. I think this is an extremely feminist film, especially for 1953. And I think a lot of those films with that character type, especially from like the pre-code era, um, like uh, Gene Harlow, um, people like that who starred in film. There's a film called um, Redheaded Woman with Jean Harlow that I love from 1932, where she's this just ruthless gold digger. Um, Barbara Stanwyck in Babyface, which is another pre-code film that's a hugely popular movie. Like a lot of those movies are really progressive for the time because again, that was how a woman succeeded, especially in the 30s. I mean, maybe slightly less so in the 50s, but especially early on, that was really the only way that you could have agency as a woman and take control of your life is to go after someone who was financially secure. So um, unless you were only, a big time movie star like Jane Russell. Right. I mean, and even then, I feel like people were were often dependent. I mean, there's um, other Gene Harlow. Um, and now I'm blanking on the name of the movie, but there is a one a very famous Gene Harlow film where she plays uh, a movie star. And, and she's still, you know, everyone looks at her as being dependent on whoever her man is. You know, because uh, there's still this double standard and that as successful as you are, you're expected to be a housewife eventually and to be um, dependent on a man. So Bombshell is the is the Jean Harlow film from 1933. That is one of her most famous films. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess maybe you don't agree with me, but to me, this film and it doesn't, it's not always the case with that kind of gold digging woman. It can be a misogynist portrayal. It can be very negative. But I think in this case, this is a movie about two women who support each other. They're, they have this very, very strong friendship and they are very proactive in going after what they want. They're not judged. The movie isn't judging them for being horny or for being uh, ambitious. And um, and it's a funny movie with great musical numbers, beautiful costumes and beautiful sets. So the one at the end where she gives the uh, speech, Marilyn Monroe gives the speech to the father, to Gus's father about, you know, you would want the same for your daughter to find the best. Like, I thought that was at least justifying some of the stuff that was going on. Uh, the rest of it, I will refrain from commenting on at the uh, moment. Well, you can comment. I mean, that's what we're here to comment on. But uh, we'll hear from some critics first who are, who are mixed on this film. I mean, I think it, this movie is now regarded as a classic. And I think especially that feminist reappraisal, which maybe, uh, Jason, you don't agree with, but a lot of people have seen it that way. At the time, maybe critics were less enthused about it, however. Bosley Crowther in the New York Times said, 
The screenplay contrived by Mr. Letterer, that's Charles Letterer, the screenwriter, is less the classic saga of Two Smart Dames, which was originally played beneath this title, than it is a silly tale of two dumb dolls. And Mr. Hawks's direction is uncomfortably cloddish and slow. Whatever there was of Miss Luce's memorable Lorelai Lee, that's Marilyn Monroe's character, the blonde whose hobby was money back in the easy salad days, is lost, strayed or possibly stolen in the foolish stunts set for Miss Monroe. And the gags pulled out for Miss Russell are devoid of character or charm. Except for one plush production number, in which Miss Monroe sings that candid refrain, the theme song of the gold diggers, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, there is not much class in this picture. Charles Lederer, a legendary screenwriter, wrote Ocean's Eleven, wrote The Thing from Another World, which Howard Hawks directed, The Spirit of St. Louis, and won three uh, Tonys for Kismet. Um, I did wonder, Josh, why didn't they call this movie Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend? I know that there was a play and all that, but it, it did seem like it would be a more accurate title to me. Uh, maybe. I mean, we know that now as such an iconic song, but maybe, maybe at the time it wasn't any more well-known than the other songs from the play. I assume they kept the title because it was a well-known title from the best-selling book and the popular... I mean, production. but do gentlemen prefer blondes? Like, eh, Jane Russell does fine in this movie for herself. That <laughs> That is true. And that wasn't even the original. I think that's a title that Anita Luce's publisher might have foisted on her, that that wasn't the original title that she had intended for this book, which is written in the first person from the perspective of Lorelai Lee, the Marilyn Monroe character here. So have uh, you ever read uh, like anything uh, like this book or anything in this genre? No, I've not read this book. And like I said, I feel like this isn't a book that people read that much anymore. Um, and I've not I mean, I've seen other films that Anita Luce has written, and she's known for this very witty, sparkling dialogue and the, the kind of snarky tone and whatever. But I haven't read. She only wrote a very small number of books. She was mainly a screenwriter. Yeah. So I have not read any of that. You, you know, when the, uh, this book was read a lot, Josh, in the easy salad days. That, yes, that is true. Um, <laughs> I feel like the depression is not the easy salad. Although I guess 25 is, is pre-depression. So, um, but right I before we went off that big cliff, get ready for it. 2023. Okay. Thank you <laughs> for that. Um, so uh, William Brogdon in Variety was also mixed on this. He said, a strong play to the sophisticated dialogue and situations is given by Howard Hawks's direction, and he maintains the racy air that brings the musical off excellently at a pace that helps cloak the fact that it's rather lightweight but sexy stuff. However, not much more is needed when patrons can look at Russell Monroe lines as displayed in slick costumes and technicolor. Together, the two femmes are the picture's outstanding assets for exploitation purposes and entertainment. Miss Russell is a standout and handles the lines and songs with a comedy flair she has previously demonstrated. Miss Monroe matches with a newly displayed ability to sex a song as well as point up the eye values of a scene by her presence. Man, there's a lot of different things in that. Uh, he, he filled a lot of different ideas into one uh, paragraph there. Yeah, yeah. and uh, all the, the the weird lingo that Variety uses, which I feel like was even more prevalent in 1953 than it is now. Josh, at the beginning of that, he was talking about how uh, great the musical numbers were, correct? And how they how excellently shot and choreographed they were? Uh, yeah, I mean, he seems to think, although that's the opposite of Bosley Crowther, who says that the direction is uh, cloddish and slow. And uh, which I disagree with, but yes. So in my research, it, uh, it ca I came across the fact that even Howard Hawks admitted he had nothing to do with these musical numbers. It was the choreographer Jack Cole, uh, who's known as the father of theatrical jazz dance, um, who produced all the musical numbers in in uh, in this film. And that's great. I mean, the musical numbers are excellent, and so it's probably smart if Howard Hawks knows what his strengths are. Obviously, the dialogue stuff. I mean, you mentioned His Girl Friday, and he's known for a lot of that sort of fast-paced comedy stuff, as well as a whole range of different kinds of movies that he's made, but certainly stuff like that and Bringing Up Baby are classic films that he directed. So 
he uses his talents there to work on the the comedy scenes and the dialogue, and he defers to someone who knows how to stage a musical number. I mean, I think the musical numbers look great. I don't know how you feel about that. I think they're the best part of the movie. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. So uh, on a more enthusiastic level, finally, uh, Kate Cameron in the New York Daily News said, Anita Luce's hilarious satire on the gold diggers of the treasure hunting 20s Gentlemen Prefer Blondes has been made into a Technicolor musical motion picture by 20th Century Fox and is now splitting the sides of audiences. A lush, lavish production made by Saul C. Siegel and cunningly directed by Howard Hawks, it has Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell, two sensational feminine stars, sharing top honors. The girls handle the broad comedy deftly, even getting away with startling dialogue that might make some members of the audience wince a bit. They sing the score with verve and are quite good in the dance routines. Yeah, I agree with most of that. The costumes are really fun to look at and there's a natural chemistry. I know those two remain friends, um, you know, for as Marilyn Monroe died shortly after this, but um, they had, they were quite fond of each other and their chemistry on screen is clearly there. Yeah, totally. I think they have great chemistry and um, whether they were, you know, you you read a lot about stars like this who are both they're both big stars and they're kind of competing for the spotlight or whatever and if there was any of that i think it doesn't necessarily come across in the film they really play off each other well and they both get big spotlights in this film yeah it's just i mean you gotta think like you know you did the you read probably the same background stuff i did jane russell was already a big star and she was making 250 grand for this movie Marilyn Monroe, also a big star. She was making $500 a week for this movie. It's tough to be in that position and feel like an equal, I would say. Right, right. And actually, one of the one of the notable scenes, one of the only scenes in, in Blonde, the recent Marilyn Monroe film that shows her doing anything positive is her sort of negotiating to try to get equal pay with Jane Russell for this film, which I guess did not work out. But uh, I mean, she would have deserved it. Like they're they're equally great, I think, in this film and and bring both important strengths to the movie. I agree. They should have been paid equally. Yeah. So, I mean, another thing that 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 is mentioned here in this review that that I found notable, the rather risque dialogue that they get away with here during this this era of the Hayes Code and. Um, Kate Cameron here seems amused by it. Another review that I didn't end up quoting, but in the in the L.A. Times, the reviewer seemed uh, appalled that there was uh, too much risque stuff. He was talking about like, what are we do we want to go back to the pre code era? Like, well, sure. Yeah, that would be great. But um, <laughs> definitely stuff in here. A lot of, uh, you know, implications and double entendres and things like that, that that are tough to get by. Yeah, that was fun. I feel like that dropped off in the second half. It was def definitely more noticeable in the first half. But, you know, I mentioned His Girl Friday, and I feel like that type of quippy, smart dialogue with entendres is there even in the 40s. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's something that I think during the code era that filmmakers were always sort of trying to insert to get around the code, but still be able to imply the things that they wanted to have in their stories, especially sometimes movies that are adapted from source material where in a novel or in a stage production, you don't have those restrictions and trying to fully adapt the story by the standards of the Hayes Code and still actually get it across is 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 tough. And Josh, you, you this is obviously your pick. When was the first time you saw this film? Uh, I'm not sure exactly when it was. A, it was a few years ago. It wasn't that long ago but um i definitely obviously i thoroughly enjoyed this film the first time and i don't know if this it was uh 2017 according to my letterbox and it, and was, it, was this the this. is this the second time you've seen it or have you watched it since or no this yeah this was the second time i watched it just as a thing to watch perhaps because of it's a notable marilyn monroe film or obviously howard hawks is a major director and i was thoroughly charmed by it that first time and so it looked like a good pick for me this season when we were just looking at what we might talk about. And I thought it would be good for balance. And I, I liked it even more this time. It's just so entertaining. I think, I think I have maybe a greater appreciation of Marilyn Monroe, having seen some more of her films since then. I just think this movie is really funny. Um, I really love the central friendship and I do like 
that it is actually this kind of subversively feminist story. I think the musical numbers are great and I just enjoy everything about this film. So um, I have a feeling that that's going to be not how you guys feel, but that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. Hey, we have different, uh, different strokes uh, to move the world as the theme song to the TV show, different strokes once told us I had never seen this movie. Uh, My, you know, kind of, Really, I think the only Marilyn Monroe movie I'd seen before was um, Some Like It Hot, which is a classic. Um, Jane Russell, I had already, we've already, it's so weird how often we're talking about the Las Vegas story this year, right? Yeah, I I noticed that who we, we, when we talked about Victor Mature in The Robe, we brought that up. And yeah, I'm, I'm probably only about as experienced as you are with Jane Russell. I've seen that and a film called Macau with her and uh, Robert Mitchum, which is sort of forgettable. So yeah, yeah. she's got a real presence about her, Jane Russell. I mean, obviously Marilyn Monroe icon, right? So it's a different presence, but like, you know, and then also you think of something like that. We know Marilyn Monroe as this really uh, transcendent pop icon. So someone that can bring as much presence to the screen and share that with her in her own way is very impressive. Yeah, like I said, I don't think whatever the pay structure was, there's there's a balance there. None, neither one is overshadowing the other. They both get really good spotlights for their talents, which are different kinds of talents too. Right. Dave, had you ever seen this? I hadn't, and I realized when I was watching Blonde earlier this year, I don't think I've seen any Marilyn Monroe movies. So I was really looking forward to this when it came up as Josh's pick because you know, obviously after watching that movie, I wanted to see some of what the real person was like. So, uh, I mean, some like it hot, seven year itch, Josh, any other recommendations, uh, Niagara maybe or something? Yeah, or? Niagara, which is also from this year. She had quite a good year in 1953 and how to marry a millionaire is fun. It's not nearly as good as this. And if you didn't like this, then you probably don't want to watch that. That's her teamed up with, uh, Betty Grable and Lauren Bacall as the, the three roommates who decide they're going to bag themselves rich men. Uh, I really like Don't Bother to Knock from 1952, which is a great showcase for her uh, dramatic talents and Niagara is as well, but especially Don't Bother to Knock where she plays this like mentally disturbed young woman. And it's really rather sensitive, especially for 1952 about mental illness and post-traumatic stress and all sorts of stuff. So that's a big recommendation. Uh, If only they could have been that sensitive with her in real life. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That is very true. So, Josh, you mentioned Betty Grable. I believe this was originally concepted as a vehicle for her, mm. um, and uh, it ended up with Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, I mean, she's fine, and I don't know that I've seen her in anything other than that other Marilyn Monroe film. But obviously, Marilyn Monroe is fantastic in this, and it, it is between this and How to Marry a Millionaire kind of defined her screen image here for better or worse as the kind of ditzy sex pot blonde that you know she embraced and fought against for the rest of her yeah and it's funny because i don't even see this character as ditzy right you know like she says you know i i can be smart when i have to be but men don't like it right like right she's not an idiot when she's talking to the jane russell character or anything like that I, i i don't think that's entirely accurate i know that's the you know, kind of stereotype, but I feel like there's more intelligence here than maybe she's given credit for. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think one of the great things about this movie is that Lorelai is a lot more intelligent or more savvy about things that are important to her, even if she doesn't know all the, you know, facts about everything that certain men know about. She is very understanding of how to get what she wants and what what does she want and how to get it. And I think that's part of the charm of the character. But yeah, a lot of people maybe just took that superficial element of it. And that was how they defined Marilyn Monroe. Laura Lee, a great Southern uh, name of like, a uh, you know, a generational family of uh, uh, Southern rich people, which she wasn't. But I feel like that's what that name conjures for me. Yeah, it is a good name. Laura Lee from from Little Rock, where they're They're just two girls from Little Rock, Josh. They are indeed. So uh, anything else you want to talk about on the background of this film? I just wanted to say, we mentioned the play and um, Carol Channing, another legend, was the star of that. And uh, at one point they had offered this movie to actress Judy Holliday and she turned it down because she said Carol Channing was so good on Broadway. No one else should get to play the part. But it's nice to recognize these legends in all their forms. 
Yeah, and I don't know if there's uh, footage of Carol Channing doing this on stage, but um, I'm sure she would have been great to it. To me, this is like, it's so definitive as a Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell thing that it would be harder for me to adjust to someone else in it. Mm. But but that was probably the opposite then, you know? Right, because she Channing was had... there in 49. It was like 49 when the stage play was. So. Right, right. And she had defined it for so many people. So it it, it took a shift there. So... We will come back then in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we are talking about my pick, which is Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, directed by Howard Hawks and starring Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell. And Jason... I've been getting these hints from you, but I Ugh. have this feeling you just, you didn't like it. Josh. Josh. <laughs> Josh. Yeah. You got Howard Hawks. Right. You got Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. You got Jane Russell. You do. You got Charles Lederer. You got yeah. Jack Cole. Mm-hmm. You got this explosive first 15 minutes with three awesome songs, right? Like yeah. one after the next, after the next. The quick dialogue, everything. Um, it's just like great. I loved it. And then the next hour, it just kind of like petered. And then the last 15 minutes, it just fell straight off the cliff for me. Okay. So, so Josh, I'm not, this is clearly not the worst movie that uh, we've ever covered. Oh, but good. to me, this is perhaps the most disappointing movie we've ever covered wow. on Awesome Movie Year. Because I was, I loved those first 15 minutes, and then it just got so progressively worse. I couldn't believe it. Like, what a bummer for me, Josh. For that me. A, right. For you personally. <laughs> yeah. No, that is a bummer. I feel like there's some, now I can't think of it, but I, I recall having a discussion similar to this where both you and I agreed that some movie that we were talking about started off, I had this like great, oh, you know what it was? It was nine to five. Yeah. Oh, it, it totally off fell great. off the ledge. Yeah. Yes. And I was with you on that one. Obviously, I don't agree on this one. Um, I think it starts great. I, I mean, I again, I thought it was great throughout. Like I said, I picked it because I remember liking it and thinking it was fun and figuring it would probably be a good fit with everything else that we're talking about. It's a movie that a lot of people are familiar with. Um, but coming back to it, it was just like, this is a joy all the way through. The musical numbers are great. As you say, I think the comedy, the writing is super sharp. There's so many clever lines. Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell are both excellent, as we keep saying, and play off each other so well and both get their really good spotlights. Yeah, the plot isn't exactly like super compelling necessarily. And you could argue, and I wouldn't disagree, that the love stories here between Jane Russell and the uh, private detective played by Elliot Reed and uh, Lorelai Lee, Marilyn Monroe's sort of love story or whatever with Mr. Esmond played by Tommy Noonan, who just kind of shows up in the beginning and the end. Yeah, there's not. They're there's both not much terrible. Story. They're both terrible <laughs> love stories, Josh. They are horrible, <laughs> terrible love stories. OK, and I I'm mean, shocked that you will not admit that. So. I, I think that's really harsh. Like, I would agree that they're kind of dull. But to say that they're horrible or terrible, I think they're just, you know, they're not the point of the movie, uh, which is actually what I like about it. The point of the movie is the bond between Lorelai and Dorothy. That is, I'm going to disagree with you there. The, I mean, because the last shot is, is a combination of what I'm saying and what you're saying. It's the two of them walking down the aisle together to marry these two insipid morons, right? And it's like, <laughs> what the heck, dude? Where did we go wrong? So let me let me start. I guess we'll start with the love stories and then we can work okay. backwards, right? So I get it. The Marilyn Monroe character, the gold digger, she's going to put up with a bunch of BS to, um, you know, make sure she bags a rich husband, right? And she does. Sure. Yes. And, and in the meantime, you know, she's scamming, um, you know, this other rich guy, Piggy, and I didn't really like that. I thought like that whole that kind of thing I thought was more unbecoming to the character than like um, enchanting of the character. But that's fine. We can look at that differently. Right. And, okay. you know, the whole idea of her like, OK, she's going to marry this guy no matter what. And she stands up to her uh, to the guy's father and she wins the guy in the end. That's fine. OK, she wins a guy that 
is he other than money? What does he bring to the table? Right? Maybe I mean, nothing. He's very nice and he's very dedicated to her. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing that those characters are dull, and especially compared to Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell. I just didn't think that they were terrible or unpleasant. Josh, tell me what Jane Russell, this strong, independent woman who fights for uh, what for her best friend, and also you know can hang with, uh, you know, the entire Olympic team and hold her own, right? What does she see in this this guy, Ernie, who's just a horrible scamster? Where, where, and she, you know, at one point she's like, I'm falling in love with you. Like, why? Where? When is this happening? You've just been a garbage person the whole time. I get nothing from you. Yeah, I mean, that is partially the way that movies went in this period of time. And that, that character has to fall in love. And I'm, I'm not disagreeing that I would have probably preferred to see her just remain independent, even though Lorelai gets married, because that's clearly all that Lorelai wants. I, 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 but I guess I didn't find him to be so terrible. And in a way, the fact that he is this scamster fits in with them because they're kind of scamsters too, right? They're, they're all out to get what's theirs and he's doing it in his way and they're doing it in their way. And I think there is some level of sensitivity to him, there's that one moment which I really enjoyed where, where um, Lorelai says something to him about like, what's your line? Asking, meaning, what does he do for a living? And he gives this, t- talks of this bit, and I, don't, I didn't write the exact quote down, but about, you know, essentially about how he picks up women and he, you know, compliments their beauty and uh, their presence. And then he, uh, you know, starts to cry and he's like, oh, and it doesn't really work out. And I feel like that shows that yeah, it's a it's a bit or whatever, but he is sensitive and he is a guy who cares about women. And it, there's not a lot of depth to that character. Sure. But it didn't infuriate me that she ended up. with. Him. I mean, it it took away my um, uh, admiration, enjoyment, uh, fulfillment of that character. I think it lessened her overall um, and what, you know, this kind of you know, a uh, proto-feminist thing is like, in the end, well, I'll just marry this shit-ass fuckface anyway, <laughs> you know? like. I'm yeah, just... I mean, I don't think, I, I think you're being too harsh on him. That like, yeah, again, it would be better maybe if she didn't get married, but within the context of this kind of movie, she's really doing the most feminist thing that, that is possible. And I mean, I don't know, maybe I've seen too many romantic comedies and musicals and whatnot from the 40s and 50s where female characters do marry horrible men who treat them horribly and the movie treats it as if this is like a great example of a good relationship and that's not what's going on here and that he is someone who respects her and treats her uh with dignity and so he respects her but he's just trying to kneecap her best friend the whole time and like ruin her life i mean he's been paid for it so you know fine but like job I, and then eventually he he quits the job and realizes that he doesn't like that's the big climactic thing in the courtroom. He says, I no longer will work for you. OK, the courtroom, Josh. We're going to skip to the end of the movie. This is <laughs> the worst part of the entire movie. And I can't believe you're going for this, Josh. I, I mean, it's obviously it's extremely silly. And if you're going to get into the like realistic details of how a court case would go yeah you're you're it's 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 not there forget that forget forget that first of all it's just such gaga nonsense that's so far over the top beyond what we've seen like it takes a total turn into just absurdity out of nowhere like this has not been the tone the whole movie it's been fun and irreverent and a little over the top and then we're in this courtroom where one it's a French magistrate, so like the communication between the two is so expositiony, it's horrible. And two, the character is like, ah, see, I know what I'll do. I'll fool the whole country. I'll just put on a blonde wig and pretend to be my friend. And like everyone but one person is like uh, too stupid to realize what's happening. I hate that. That's the type of stuff that is so convenient and garbagey that I just can't stand it. Yeah, it's silly, certainly, but I think. <laughs> I mean, I like I, I don't think it's tonally off this. It's a movie that is escalating the tone. It gets sillier and sillier until we finally end up in this absurd farce of a courtroom. And like, yeah, it's ridiculous. 
that Jane Russell is impersonating Marilyn Monroe and nobody knows. Although to be fair, almost nobody in that courtroom has seen what actual Laura Liley looks like. I mean, they don't have they don't have security cameras. Sure. And I mean, I feel like you're nitpicking they not have, that this movie is not it's not relevant. They don't have fingerprints. They don't have identification. You can just walk into court without any ID pictures, passports, anything. I just think it is relevant because it's so unbelievable compared to what's happened. Like it's a convenient, easy way out. And we talk about this on this podcast. This feels like it was written for the convenience of possibly a joke or an end game. And it doesn't have any logic where I, as an audience member can be like, yeah, I can go with that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know what else to say, but like, yes, it's ridiculous. I'm not going to argue the like logical progression of how this case was brought to court or whatever, because it doesn't matter to the movie. And thus it like, and I think this is one of these things where, right. Okay. At that point, you already were not into it, right? You, it wasn't like you loved the movie up until the courtroom, right? I mean, I was still with it until then, though. I was like teetering on like, I loved the first 15 minutes. And then I was like, man, this thing plateaued out real fast. But I was still with it. And then the last 15 minutes, I was like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> I mean, because I just feel like I was, I loved the character so much. I loved the tone. I loved everything that was going on. I wasn't concerned about the contrivances of that moment. And I think that, you know, we talk about this a lot too, that you can forgive a lot of things. Like many, many movies have issues with plot holes or internal consistency or believability or whatever. But if you're into the characters and the performances and the other elements of the movie, then you'll be more forgiving. And so if you were teetering, as you say, then it doesn't surprise me that something that came up that, that would annoy you just took you out of it entirely. It did. It did. And, you know, another issue, Josh, that I had with it, and, I, and I'm surprised you didn't have this issue, is like, like I said, you had this rocket ship at first, these three great musical numbers, two little girls from Little Rock, and then what was it? It was uh, Bye Bye Baby, right? Which personally, I think that might have been the best musical number in the whole thing, right? Yeah. And, and then you have Jane Russell with her big turn in Anybody Looking for Love, I think is what it's called. And that, honestly, like I, I've said before, like sometimes I'll watch something and like before I'll go on to the next bit of the movie, I'll be like, well, that was so good. I want to watch that again. That's how I felt about that musical number, the way it was staged, the action, the, the choreography, all the things that were kind of uh, converging at once. Like um, the frames were so full of just athletes and dancers and it was really great and like i thought i mean that's where it peaked for me and the thing is like there was no musical numbers again until act three it really bummed me out that we went 45 minutes without any more musical numbers because i think it it cheated me on the expectation of like hey i have three songs in the beginning and then an hour of nothing and then three songs at the end that's a very weird structure for a musical yeah i mean i Again, I don't disagree that those opening musical numbers are really good and that it is a little weird that there isn't a musical number for a long stretch. I would have been happy to have one or two more. I know they did cut several that are in the stage version. Yeah. But I enjoyed so much everything else that was going on that, to be honest with you, I didn't notice it until later and think about, oh, yeah, you know what? There's It's been a while because the comedy was so good. I was so into the characters. I was so entertained by everything else. I wasn't thinking like, oh, this is a bummer that there's not another musical number, even though I thoroughly enjoyed the ones early on. And then we get some at the end and Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is fantastic. Um, iconic for- It's reason. great. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and the one they sing outside the cafe is good. And then what yeah. I read about the one that they cut and it was like kind of like um, a medley of a bunch of stuff from the uh, show. That would have been awesome too. But I just, it's weird because I feel like like these are normally points that you would agree with me on, but just because you're like, but I liked it. So I'm going to let it go is I feel like that's your argument on this today. I mean, but that's a valid argument that happens a lot. I feel like, you know, and it's not just, but I liked it. It's like I said, because these other elements were strong because I thought the writing was clever. I thought the characters were well-drawn. I thought the performances were good and I was being, and it was paced well and I was being, uh, you know, sort of pulled along by everything else that was going on in the movie. So I enjoyed everything that was happening. I enjoyed the musical numbers and I enjoyed the things that weren't musical numbers. Yeah. 
You're simping, Josh. You're simping for <laughs> gentlemen prefer blondes. And uh, I am I am expressing enthusiasm for a movie that I like. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, those were my that. those were my three big problems with it, All and right. that's what that's what just destroyed something that was so special for 15 minutes josh mm. okay well yeah. all right i mean uh was there anything else positive that you uh would want to highlight well i mean i think you i think like i said like you know and you've said like the chemistry between those two crackles um uh it's really nice uh marilyn monroe is so enthusiastic like just like about I mean, you could see she really wants this, right? Like, yeah. and but it comes off as like an authentic version of it, not like um, Katy Perry, who just tries too hard at everything, right? You know, but like, um, so like, I like that. I think Jane Russell is such an interesting actress. She's really fun. And, you know, uh, Hawks is a legend, so it's always worth watching what he's going to do. But uh, the best stuff is the stuff he didn't contribute to on this one, the musical numbers. So it's just I don't know, man. It just is. It's interesting. Like, could it go into something like, man, I'm so excited about this. And then being like, man, you just punched me right in the dick, didn't you? All right. I mean, I will say that I think the comedy is on par with the musical numbers. And that is that is what Hawks is contributing here. As well as I'm sure, like visual style, you know, set design and and I mean, not that he designed the sets, but you know, overseeing that kind of stuff. Uh, the outfits are great, you know. Yeah. So sorry. Yeah. No. No. Don't. Hey, man, it didn't work for you. It didn't work for you. So yeah. I mean, and I think one of the other things that again I really enjoy about this film is just that relationship. That I think that is why it didn't bother me so much. The love interests were so underwhelming because. The relationship between Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe, between Lorelai and Dorothy, is so emotionally rich, is so fun to watch, and they play off each other so well. And this is a movie about these two women who support each other. And if someone, if someone will ever say something bad about Lorelai that she's dumb or doesn't know what she's talking about, like Dorothy will be right there to say, like, sh to shut that down. And I appreciate it. Yeah. That. So I think uh, from the opposite end for me, because those two are so you know, simpatico and have such an elevated like presence together that it's extremely noticeable when they're not together on screen. Yeah. And that's, and that's fair, you know, and if this were not 1953, maybe they could just end up together and we wouldn't have to worry about those dudes, but I mean, Josh, they can just can be now. friends today, Josh. God. True. Or that, you know, where we wouldn't have <laughs> either way. No, you're right. We wouldn't have the obligation of giving them male love interests, whether they were their own love interests or they were just friends. I feel like there's movies like this where that's the case. I mean, to me, you know, we've talked about this. Like, I I love this kind of like the 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 buddy pairing of the smart dumb characters, and you know, there's a lot of male versions of that. Like when we talked about, you know, uh, Bill and Ted and Wayne and Garth and Harold and Kumar and stuff Paris, like that. Paris, Texas. <laughs> um, but sure. you know, to me, this is in the tradition of other films that were my pick that you didn't like like Smiley Face and Night of the Comet, um, as well as more recent stuff that I've liked, like Never Going Back, which Dave and I had I, 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 I like Never Going Back a lot. Yeah. I, I didn't think Night of the Comet was bad. I mean, you know, so, and you know, I like this stuff too. Like I did not like Booksmart, obviously, but like there's right. plenty of other, the Hannah Marks one, Banana Split, I love, you know, yes. like, so it's just, but I mean, but again, it has, I feel like the ones I don't like feel very unearned to me. And that's um, where this got to for me. Yeah. All right. Uh, Dave, I think you also didn't like this. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go as far as Jason, but I also agree with almost everything he said here. Um, oh, that's I, your face, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's still enjoyable because some of the jokes do land, although I would say for this being such like a, a big feminist thing, I think most of the jokes that do land are very like on the ditzy aspects of Marilyn Monroe of her performance. But still like I, the fact that we lose the musical performances for like 40 minutes is very strange when those are the best parts of the movie and the relationships are just nonsense, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't feel like the jokes were at the expense of Lorelai, even if they were about, her sort of ditziness it was not all of them not all of them but like i would say the best ones <laughs> like and so i don't know it it was a weird balance for me and i i, I wish i liked it more but um yeah it's kind of like right in the middle for me 
All right. So is this gonna is this gonna inspire you guys to watch Mar- more Marilyn Monroe movies, or is this gonna end that? No, I have no problem. I mean, dude, she's a, a legend. I would have no sure. problem watching more movies of her, Howard yeah. Hawks or Jane Russell. I just think this one uh, missed a lot for me. Uh, exactly. The two of them are great. It's just the movie itself isn't as good. All right. Well, I guess we can stop beating up on this film. Yeah, <laughs> you guys, we, you know, we all do this over, um, we can see each other. It's like a Zoom type thing. And Josh, we could just see what, what remnants of his heart were alive or yeah, dying like, slowly. Like, right that, now. Uh, like that Simpsons episode where we uh, pause right as Ralph Wiggum's heart is broken. <laughs> Let's rate this out of five diamonds, I guess. That seems like. Sure. Boring. Yeah. Sure. Jason, I got, I give it two and a half, Josh, and it was at three for me until the last fifteen minutes, and it just lost me completely. And it gets two and a half for the reasons we talked about. The musical numbers are so good, and the the two ladies just um, just kill it. Yeah, well, that's a higher rating than I expected based on this discussion. So um... no, I mean, I have to appreciate the merit and the craftsmanship of certain things and the accomplishments of those two. Yeah. All right. Dave, how do you want to rate this? I'm going three. Uh, A little higher, but, you know, still, it's in the middle, you know? Yeah. All right. I rated four, and that was actually a a bump up from what I rated it the first time I saw it. I just thoroughly enjoyed this all the way, and the flaws didn't bother me or didn't really seem that flawed to me. So I like it, and I hope if people haven't seen it, that they won't be too turned off from watching it based on this discussion. And if people do watch it, uh, let us know where you've fallen online on this one. Yes, please do. And we will come back and talk about the legacy of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1953, we have been talking about my pick, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, directed by Howard Hawks, who, uh, as we have been saying, is a complete legend in Hollywood. And this was actually closer to the end of his career, although he did make at least one more Stone Cold classic after this film, uh, Rio Bravo, which is certainly known as one of the greatest Westerns of all time, and continued to work for, uh, you know, another decade and a half. His final film was called Rio Lobo, another Western, and he's very well known for Westerns, among many other things. And uh, that was in 1970. He got an honorary Oscar in 1974, died in 1977. But I mean, just a towering career. So I don't, do you have any other favorites of his, Jason? Yeah, his girl Friday is just, I love it. It's a great, um, I mean, that's, you know, when you talk about quippy dialogue and like, um, I told you I rewatched it before this and, and it's uh, Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. And I think that movie works way better as a whole. But those two on screen together um, are just so on fire that like when either one of them is in a scene without the other, you're like, this is nobody's fault that it's lesser than when they are on screen together um, because it's still good. But it's just when those two are together, it is like one of the all time great comedy pairings, I think, in uh, movie history. Yeah, I haven't seen that in a while, but I definitely enjoyed that. Um, I like the big sleep a lot, you know, early kind of film noir detective story sets the template for a lot of that stuff. Um, and and Rio Bravo is good too. Rio Bravo is um, also a very influential on like action movies and horror movies and stuff that have been remakes essentially of Rio Bravo in various ways. He's yeah, he's one of like you know if you you know he's one of the biggest uh, most important American filmmakers that that's ever been right. And it's crazy to think he won that uh, that uh, honorary Oscar because he was only nominated for an Oscar once in his entire career, which is a, a bit wild when you think about that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these, I feel like, um, you know, there are a lot of these workhorse kind of classic Hollywood directors who, I mean, Hawks maybe is a different example because he did make so many of these movies that are considered like the greatest of all time. But a lot of these others who just worked in a variety of genres and kind of picked up what was available and you look back on their careers and think, wow, this person did so much amazing stuff, but never necessarily got that recognition and uh and i guess hawks is in there too i mean this is one of those uh this is one of those recurring themes so we come back to in this season where these are like you said these are workhorses these are contract players right they're going to keep going and going and um you know there were there were certain uh 
idealized advantages to that and a lot of bad things from it too. Right. And I think it's interesting to look at sort of this is, you know, the late part of Howard Hawks's career. And a few episodes ago, we looked at the beginning of Stanley Kubrick's career. And, you know, Kubrick could not be more the opposite of those anonymous kind of studio players. I mean, he is an auteur of the highest order or whatever. And here's this sort of inflection point where both of these directors are working at the same time. Yeah. The one thing I would say is they both have very interesting ways of playing humor that I think come across the screen um in really effective manners yeah so we we talked a bit about marilyn monroe uh again this this kind of established a lot of her image as this this sex pot it was a huge year for her in 53 with how to marry a millionaire and niagara and sadly she did have a tragic end to her life in uh, her the final film she made was the misfits in 1961 which i haven't seen and i did mention you know my favorites don't bother to knock and the seven year itch so, um, Jason, I guess you said uh, some like it hot. That's the only other Monroe you've seen. Yeah. But you also have to mention that first issue of Playboy. It was such a huge deal and a piece of American history. You know, she's the cover girl and uh, sold just a ton. And it, it furthered that image of her as like the sex symbol of America. Right. And that was something where they purchased pictures of her without her permission. And I mean, a lot of terrible mistreatment. And um blonde is not in a lot of ways a, a very good movie but um between that and various other portrayals of her on screen i mean there's a lot of documentation about how yeah. tough her life was and the way she was mistreated and and i think in a way that makes her performances almost more impressive because you look at her on screen and she has this effervescence and she has this positivity and she has this emotional availability despite everything that she's gone through. She, you know, left the studio system, formed her own production company right after this, around 54, 55. And she was training at the actor's studio with all like, you know, and she was married to Arthur Miller. So you wonder like, what could have been after she aged out of this, right? Had she had the chance? Because like, clearly there's so much more there than just uh, physical beauty. Like we said in this, she's really good in this, you know? Yeah. So um, it is... Um, it is sad. Also sad was uh, Dave yesterday was Josh's birthday and I went and I saw him and I did not sing happy birthday, <laughs> Mr. Podcaster, so on and so forth. Happy yeah. birthday. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, at least you did now. Yeah. The only thing the only thing more enjoyable than you doing that now would have been as if you would stand in front of me directly in person and sing that because I didn't have the have... dress. So, you yeah, know. that's true. You got to go grab that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Jane Russell, I think, as we've said, neither of us super familiar with much of her other work, but she was a very busy actor. She was uh, more established than Marilyn Monroe before this. She appeared in the sort of pseudo sequel to this film called Gentlemen Mary Brunettes, which was made in 1955. And it seems like because of various licensing issues, the novel that Anita Luce wrote, but Gentlemen Mary Brunettes is an actual sequel to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, but the movie version is not. It has different characters. She's not playing her same character from this. And uh, by all accounts, not very good, but uh, an attempt to recapitalize on this. Right. And we know Marilyn Monroe is not in that, but Jack right. Cole came back and, you know, it could have, it would be, I guess, interesting to see. It's funny because Josh, she was such a famous person at this time, but when you go over her filmography, there wasn't really much I recognize from her, her filmography here, you know? That's true. Yeah. And like I said, I've only seen her in, I mean, like we talked about the Las Vegas story, and I feel like you and I saw that both just because of the Las Vegas connection here. It's not necessarily a super well-known film. And that other film that I've seen, Macau, with, with Robert Mitchum, I think it has some acclaim. It was on the Criterion channel when I watched it, but is not like a super well-known film necessarily. She created WAIF, the first international adoption agency. And um, what I found to be interesting and supposedly she killed it, not a surprise, was uh, she replaced Elaine Stritch in company on Broadway. Like, what a what a twosome to go from one to the next. Yeah, I mean, she had a long and, and varied career. Uh, she worked until 1986, did a lot of TV later in her career, and died in 2011, so had a very long retirement as well. Really just quite quite a career there. 
Yeah, all these guys. Like, we just don't know. Like, Charles Coburn, who played Piggy, won the Best Supporting Actor for The More the Merrier. He was nominated three times. He's worked with Preston Sturgis, Ernst Lubitsch, John Huston, Howard Hawks. Like, I mean, you know, that's a huge... And that's not even counting his theater career. Like, all these guys, you know, they... Like, we talk about... It's a different time. They had to work constantly just to keep going. But, like, they really, really did it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these people, even someone that's like, oh, I'm not familiar with that person. And you open up Wikipedia or IMDb and there's just this massive list of credits like I had no idea, you know, and some of them when they transition to TV later in the 50s and 60s and and beyond, it's like just guest starring on every, you know, TV cop show and TV medical show that existed for decades. Right. So Elliot Reed, you know, who I didn't like here is Ernie supposedly was such a great John F. Kennedy impersonator that he did it at the White House. And I know that was like a huge, that was like a career you could have at that point in time, right? You know? Yeah. Um, so uh, he was on an episode of Seinfeld and he uh, his other two movies that we might know him from were uh, The Absent-Minded Professor and Son of Flubber. Oh, both of the, <laughs> that and the sequel. Yeah, I haven't seen those. Not a big Jerry Lewis fan here. Lyle! <laughs> I can't wait to do a Jerry Lewis movie episode and hear that for an hour. I'm going <laughs> to stick in the character. But um, Josh, a few other notes. Tommy Noonan, who played Gus, was in A Star is Born and Bundle of Joy. And I did want to talk about some of the other people um, from the musical side. Like you mentioned, Hoagie Carmichael. And that guy, you know, talk about looking up uh, <laughs> yeah, a prolific, a prolific uh, career. This guy wrote like 200 songs and 50 of them were hits. Uh, he won an Oscar for Best Original Song for In the Cool, Cool, Cool of Everything in 1951. Harold Adamson, who wrote with him on this movie, also wrote the I Love Lucy theme. And then um, Jewel Style and Ralph Ranger were the two who did the music for the show. Style was known for Gypsy, Funny Funny Girl, and um, and Ranger wrote Thanks for the Memories, which was uh, it's Leo Robin who wrote it uh, with Ralph Ranger, I should say. I apologize. Leo Robin wrote for this movie. And then Thanks for the Memories was uh, Bob Hope's big song. And they won a uh, uh, Oscar in 1938 for that one. Yeah. And I mean, I was sort of surprised, you know, you were you were mentioning how to succeed in business without really trying that we talked about. And that's a stage show that is revived over and over and over again. And I'm surprised that this hasn't been done that often. I mean, it had major revivals in 1962, 1974, when Carol Channing actually returned. And the last Broadway version of it was in 1995. And it looks like there have been small kind of one-offs and things like that since then. But I, I, I mean, I guess maybe you could argue that it would seem dated, but no more so than how to succeed in business. I, I wonder if you could reverse it. You know, I'm not going to say perhaps two guys is the lead, but maybe um, one is there's like a gay love story or a female and a, a gay male as the two leads. I'm not exactly sure, but that ha- it would have to take some updating, I think. Yeah, maybe that's true. And I mean, we could uh, see if that was possible, but even in this version of it, I feel like you set it in the time period and it could still be something, but doesn't seem like something that people have picked up, really. Well, uh, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is one of the most um, homaged, shall we say, uh, musical yeah. numbers of all time. Obviously, Material Girl by Madonna is the one we all grew up with, but yeah. it's been all mm-hmm. over pop culture. Right. I mean, and of course, I saw that Material Girl video many, 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 many times before ever seeing this film um, and and probably took me a while before I realized that it was the, an homage to something that Marilyn Monroe had done. But yeah, um, well, that's yeah. because you're living in a material world. I am. And I am a material girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the other thing that I wanted to mention here that's tangentially connected. I was excited because this gives me a chance to tell my crazy story about George Winslow, which I believe you guys have heard. Um, But I'll tell it here for our listeners. George Winslow, who is a child actor in this film, plays um, the the what exactly is Uh, Henry Henry. Yeah. Henry Spofford, the third, 
who they Lorelai sees on the manifest, the passenger list, and decides to target, not realizing that he's a, a very rich child. Right. And, and he so, plays like basically a child who acts like an adult, which I think was his thing in that. Yes, time he period. he was nicknamed Foghorn because he had this sort of deep sounding voice, even though he was a child. And in this film, he wears this bow tie and he's very sophisticated. And he was a pretty famous child actor for a brief moment, but retired from acting at age 12, as a lot of child actors that we've talked about in various episodes, went on to have a nice full life, worked for the Postal Service. He died in 2015. However, <laughs> in I don't remember what year this was, but uh, quite a number before 2015, before he died, I at the uh, Damn Short Film Festival, which is a great film festival we have here in Boulder City, uh, wonderful short films, etc., met this man named Michael Mott. And he was a volunteer for the Damn Short Film Festival and started talking to me in the break room or the lounge or whatever, me and another local film critic named Jacob Toronto, and was enthused about, he was excited to meet us, we were critics, and so he was telling us all, all about his life and said that before he had moved to Las Vegas, he had been a child actor and that, in fact, he was this actor named George Foghorn Winslow, and he was a child actor, and he, you know, gave it up, and then later in his life moved to Las Vegas, and he worked at UNLV, and so I was excited about this. I thought, how cool is this that this child actor who worked with Marilyn Monroe and was like a big star in the 1950s now lives here, and I thought I might write an article about it, and just hadn't really connected back with him, and then. I read that George Winslow had died <laughs> and thought, oh, how sad that this nice guy that I met at the Damn Short Film Festival had died. But the details of George Winslow's death, living in California and having worked as a postal worker for many years, did not line up with what Michael Mott had told us. And so the next year at the Damn Short Film Festival, who was there? It was Michael Mott. And I said, hey, I heard something about you. And he was... To his credit, on top of it, you heard I was dead, right? I did hear that you were dead. <laughs> what is the deal with that? And Michael Mott told me that, in fact, what happened was because he wanted to shun his fame as a child actor, he had allowed, I think it was a friend or a cousin, I believe he said it was a cousin, to assume the identity of George Winslow and take credit for all of his work. And that was, in fact, who had died. And slowly, as I talked to him more at this time, I realized that this man is insane. <laughs> and not only did he claim to be child actor George Winslow, but he and he would always do sort of like an implication of like, hey, buddy, let me let me uh, you can guess at what this was. And also said that he was the father of Skeet Ulrich, who was uh, unwilling to acknowledge him as his father. So I was thankful that I didn't try to write a straightforward article about this former child actor who moved to Las Vegas after changing his name. But just such a weird thing. As far as I know, this guy is still out there, perhaps still volunteering at local film festivals. He's not George Winslow, who had a nice full life, but that's that story. I think you should have written the article after all this transpired. Yeah, I, I actually, I thought of doing that. And I remember pitching it to an editor and telling her this whole thing. And sort of as I was talking about it, realizing that I was pitching it as like, oh, this is a scamster. And I realized as I'm pitching it that like, no, this is just a story of someone who's mentally ill. And I, I don't want to yeah. sort of mock him for that. So I'm just going to do it on this podcast instead. <laughs> it would still make a great movie. I'd love to see that movie. It's a wild story. And just I, I think there is an article, uh, obviously, maybe not connect with him, but like of how many people from classic Hollywood have ended up in Boulder City over the years. Right. I mean, and those are real people have ended up there. Of course, speaking of the damn short film festival, uh, Desi Arnaz Jr. is the owner of that classic theater where they hold that festival every year. And he's been a longtime Boulder City resident. And certainly I think part of the reason I believed him is because a lot of people from classic Hollywood do end up here. George Stevens and Tony Curtis, people like that retired. We just yeah. talked about it in our Fisher. Dr. T episode. Right. Yeah. right. Todd Fisher and those those stars from from the Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T. So it was plausible, but uh, not true. So that is my very long digression well, about George Winslow. Boulder City is very nice, by the way. Yeah, we like Boulder <laughs> City. Thank oh, yeah. you. 
Gentlemen for prefer blondes and Josh prefers childhood actor impersonators, apparently. I don't know what's left to say in this one, Josh. Let's wrap this bad boy up, huh? Let's do it. That is Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media and online. Sure. I'm Jason Foghorn Harris on all the socials. Not true. Just Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. The trivia party at Eat This Comedy is still going strong. Uh, my website, go for Jason. Go for Jason? Go f- it might as well be go for Jason. Who cares about that thing right now? Hey, I'm building a new website. Whatever. Leave me alone. Awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome movie pod on Twitter. I am at joshbellhateseverything.com, which also could use a refresh at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod and check me out on Letterboxd at By David Rosen, where you'll find one of the few positive reviews of Blonde. <laughs> oh, yeah. We didn't even get into Blonde. Did you like Blonde better than this, Dave? Oh, I love Blonde. Um, oh but, it, it, you know, that's a story for another time. Yeah, that is. You're so, a story uh, for another time. <laughs> we'll hold on that. What do we have in our next episode, Jason? Josh, we're going to a foreign film, thankfully, because that's been the only good thing we've seen this season. So <laughs> it's uh, by the classic Japanese director Ozu, and it is Tokyo Story. So tune in next time for Tokyo Story. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.